0: Yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy, commonly associated for helping people manage depression anxiety, very effective. And uh, now we see as an effective approach for helping people manage insomnia. And insomnia can be secondary to many factors, and absolutely that can include anxiety. Uh, in addition to uh, how we've kind of formed uh, our, our thoughts and uh, mental concepts and certainly our attitudes over the years, for example, dealing with chronic insomnia. Um, And and some of those just attitudes compose of uh, that regret having to go to bed at night because we kind of shape this belief that the bed is kind of our enemy. And and, and so people struggle with that. And and it's a self-perpetual problem of of trying to get asleep because now they're in bed, they're not sleeping, they're rolling, tossing, and turning. And it's a very frustrating process for a lot of people. So you can imagine over the years uh, that has a toll. And that has a toll on our psyche and how we uh, see, how we uh, um, shape our beliefs about sleep, and then that's problematic. And then certainly those attitudes are shifted. And so. And many other complex issues go into the cognitive behavioral issues related to insomnia. So the idea of CBT, the acronym, uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, uh, CBTI, uh, is essentially, first of all, identifying those mental factors, kind of identify those bad attitudes, and and then kind of help reshape those attitudes. Okay, let's think about, you know, the bed is not such a bad place, but first of all, let's build up a positive association. Uh, so meaning the bed equals sleep so there's only a few things we should be doing in bed and maybe isolate down to one thing sleep and so everything has to be done out of bed taken out, maybe out of the bedroom entirely, because what we need to do is uh, kind of retrain our brain, and we need to condition our brain uh, to see that bed equals sleep and nothing else. And so that positive association should be helpful in that process of getting to sleep at night. And so that's part of it. So that's kind of reshaping the mental attitude, if you will, with CBTI. And then there are very specific behavioral components to this. And, of course, we we look at sleep hygiene and good sleep principles involving good sleep education. Everything I mentioned before, what's conducive for sleep with our environment, cold, cool, dark, quiet, so on and so forth. And then in addition, we have to identify, are there other factors that may be keeping us up at night? Um, For example, uh, we've talked about circadian interruptions, circadian problems. Uh, it can be intrinsic, meaning this is how we're wired. I, I want to go to bed at night. I'm a night owl and get up late in the morning. Uh, but I can't. i got to go to school. i got to go to work. And so those are intrinsic factors that can be problematic for people trying to get on a normal schedule with everybody else. So that needs to be identified well, and that could potentially be worked on from a behavioral perspective. And then other disruptions at night, too. We've got to look into the, what's disturbing. Is it your bed partner uh, from snoring, for example, or too many awakenings and tossing and turning themselves? as a kids and so forth. So look at your environment as there's something we can adjust, perhaps on a behavioral level. Then something that CBTI also incorporates is something that we call sleep restrictive therapy. And this is really identifying really where you consolidate your sleep very well. That could be between the hours of two and six perhaps, you feel like you get your best sleep but you have a hard time getting to sleep beforehand. and So we want to try and help by increasing your consolidated sleep time. Instead of just lying in bed awake for hours, let's get out of bed. In fact, what we're going to do is identify what is a reasonable bedtime, and then let's see if we can consolidate that sleep, always waking up at the same time, and then rewarding yourself 15, 20 minutes every few days if you're getting that what we call sleep efficiency. And we want that 90% sleep efficiency. What that means is you're gonna take the total time in bed and you're gonna divide it by the total sleep time. Good estimations, people can use a Fitbit as a kind of a guide to help. Not completely accurate, but I think a decent reference in, in terms of how much time you're in bed and maybe how much time you're sleeping. And so what we look for is that 90% efficiency, that time in bed you're actually asleep. And so about every week you can give yourself 15, 20 minutes so what you do, for example, let's say, well, I, I find myself generally asleep from 2 to 5. Okay, well, let's start there then. Let's not go to bed till 2 in the morning. Now, we, have to be, we have to exercise some caution. I do advise this program be done under a therapist or a sleep physician because I don't want people driving to work in those morning hours with only 3 hours of sleep. Okay, So we're going to have to set that schedule in a safe manner uh, um, so there's no hazards on the road. And so that, that's one idea, just an example of sleep restrictive therapy that can be a part of a CBTI. And then there's other things, too. We, we look at certain behaviors. We've talked about attitudes, certainly. But uh, it goes through and, uh, and details it this much more with various programs. Many sleep centers offer this. There's online resources that offer CBTI as well. Oh, that's a great question. It can be any age number one, but we, have, we tend to see our primary insomniacs early on. And so one of my first questions when I evaluate an insomniac is, well, about how old were you when you first noticed the insomnia? If I'm getting a history, I've always been this way, even since a child, or maybe even as an infant, I was just a poor sleeper. And that's pretty telling. It likely is kind of a, a, either a genetic or a wired condition for this person. And as we get older, so adolescence. this is when we tend to experience the circadian changes. And what we call typically, uh, or common for uh, adolescents, is delayed sleep phase syndrome. And this is when the circadian rhythm, for, for most of us, the normal clock would say, hey, I wanna go to bed and sleep at 10 or 11 at night and get up at six or seven in the morning. So that would be kind of the average, uh, the norm for most people. Uh, quite a, a few of us are delayed, and that maybe our brain is telling us we want to go to sleep rather at 2 or 3, maybe later in the morning, and obviously get up later. Still getting that 7, 8 hours of sleep, but it, it just wants to wake up later. And so that's called delayed sleep phase syndrome. And uh, understanding this is a problem for adolescents based on high school reports, and yeah. traffic accidents in the morning. Uh, so many districts back east, for example, have delayed or postponed class start time and have actually seen significant results, benefiting grades and less traffic accidents in the mornings. Yeah. And so as a consequence, uh, understanding Delayed Sleep Phase Syndrome, I think as a society we can actually help, especially adolescents, overcome some of these issues. That's a side issue. Now, but that is a, what we tend to label as insomnia, it's not true insomnia, it's a, it's a circadian problem, but we see that common with adolescents, but of course, then you have poor sleep hygiene anyway that we have to distinguish among our adolescents, smartphones in bed and so forth, staying up late at night for whatever reason, so we have to be careful distinguishing the circadian problem from just poor behaviors. And then, okay, we get into school, we got the stressors, we started a family, postpartum issues to newborns for mom and dads. You know, those are factors that can sometimes be pivotal in the cycle of insomnia. We start to get into some of these poor behaviors and, and things can get out of line essentially, physically and mentally. And that's no longer very conducive for sleep. And so what we call secondary factors, uh, psychophysiological insomnia included, that goes on, and so yes, that's common in our late twenties, thirties. We get into our forties, we get into midlife crises. There's life is full of stress, right? So nonstop. As we get older, we get into health problems and that just adds to the stress. So to answer your question, I would say insomnia is everywhere, all age groups. And what we try to do though is break that down, distinguish it you know, from primary insomnia, uh, maybe a, a circadian problem with delayed types, and then of course situational insomnia. And by the way, half of the population can experience situational insomnia sometime in their life. It's very common, and not uncommon to spend maybe one night a month entirely awake. You know, that's one thing I want to get across to patients is occasional insomnia is actually quite normal. All of us experience that. You know, we're going to have nights, uh, hopefully not regular, and how we define this, well, if there's a regular pattern of poor sleep and, and suffering the consequences, uh, th- then we can talk about insomnia. But having occasional nights where we don't sleep or just get a couple hours, that, that's normal. That's just life. That's what stress will do to us. That's what uh, that happens. Yeah, good question, because uh, in terms of morbidity and mortality, so that's the health effects of poor sleep, we've identified kind of a a happy medium with sleep duration. And that duration seems to be around seven, eight hours. We've identified if you sleep six hours or less, there can be potential health consequences. Sleep in nine hours or more, similar consequences. And largely those consequences include cardiovascular effects, Higher risk of coronary artery disease, for example, uh, cerebral arterial disease, and in addition to cancer, uh, neoplastic disorders, getting too less or too much sleep. And so interestingly, uh, yes, and we found a happy medium uh, for many, perhaps, physiological reasons unexplained. We have some idea, but seven to eight hours is our goal. But well, the science behind that's interesting, lacking considerably. Uh, and in terms of the physiological effects of sleep fragmentation, for example, there's an abundance. And sure, and to make it simple, we believe that sleep is kind of a cleansing period. Okay. And for number one, we know there's hormonal changes during sleep and other neurotransmission changes during sleep. Sleep is not a passive process, by the way. And we think it is, our mind seems to shut off. We get occasional dreaming, but for the most part, it, it still remains quite an active process. And so the physiological changes are actually quite impressive. And so there, there's data showing it's kind of a, a cleansing period when we talk about very specific substrates that collect. Uh, if up can be potentially harmful or maybe even alter our hormonal system, alter our endothelial uh, cells, the vascular system. And so um, now sleep apnea, we have a lot more information about that pertaining to fragmented sleep and what that does to the cardiovascular system. But I I think it's just implied that uh, sleep deprivation in general can lead to similar problems on the vascular level. Certainly uh, we've talked about the immune compromise uh, situations with sleep deprivation or sleep fragmentation, but sleep deprivation itself does alter the immune system and maybe to the point it's no longer keeping those uh, cells in check that would lead to cancer. Well, that's interesting. I, I have uh, uh, so, some uh, uh, um, utility with uh, any device that, that measures, a so-called measures sleep. Um, they all have their limitations and certainly if they, they think they can measure REM sleep and other stages of sleep, I think they're way off in terms of their marketing. Um, but it does kind of give patients a general ballpark, uh, a reference. Uh, and certainly I think it's more of the reference that's useful, given a, a baseline status and let's move forward with therapy, and maybe that can tell us how the therapy's helpful. Most of these are just based on some rudimentary form of actigraphy, which is a measurement of movement. Uh, and so that's how these, uh, most of these uh, uh, devices work is based on movement. And, and so certainly if you're more still and it has these algorithms to calculate them, what, when would sleep be transmitting at that time of, of less movement? Uh, again, some, some limitations with those. And so it's just something to consider, but you can use those devices, as I believe, as reference. How are we doing with the therapy, and are we going in the right direction? Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of The Daily Diagnosis. We're so happy that you joined us today. If you would like to find more information about Ogden Clinic, our providers, or locations, visit us at OgdenClinic.com. If you're listening today from Apple Podcasts app, make sure you leave us a review or subscribe so you can receive more information about the different episodes that we post. We love getting feedback from our audience, so those reviews are priceless to us if you also would like to shout us out on social media our instagram handle is at ogden clinic you can also send us a dm if there's a topic that you would like our providers to cover and we really look forward to hearing from you we post episodes weekly so tune in next week and we can't wait to be with you again have a great week